Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, Bill, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. Hey, Ted, thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here tonight. All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I apologize profusely. I'm not sure what happened, but uh, apparently we uh, had some technical issues coming on air tonight, so I want to apologize for those of you that tuned in uh, to listen to the show tonight. Uh, Certainly not uh, the way I wanted to start off uh, 2017, but anyways, uh, it seems that uh, I've got it resolved here. So uh, anyways, I will... um, I will begin the show and, and see if we can start this over again. Anyways, welcome to Golf Talk Live. Uh, I'm your host, of course, Ted Odorico, and I'm glad that you're, for those of you that are tuning in, are able to join us tonight. And again, I apologize um, for the uh, little mishap to start off the program, but it seems like we're uh, doing everything okay now. But uh, anyways, um, the show obviously airs uh, every uh, Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. We're obviously going to be a little bit shorter tonight since this is the first show of the year. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements. My very special guest, of course, tonight is Bill Abrams. He's a PGA professional and the owner-director of Instruction for Golf Solutions Academy uh, in Belmero Woods, and, which is uh, in Crate, Illinois. We'll talk about uh, all of that. And also, uh, I'll give you a little bit more background on Bill in just a moment. But uh, let me just, uh, a few quick announcements. As I said, we are live every Thursday nights uh, when everything is working well. Uh, you can tune into blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on that network. 
And uh, if you want to call into the show and speak with any of the guests, you can do so by calling area code 646-716-4667. Or you can email any questions or comments to me if you want during the show uh, or after if you want at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And of course, I update in all social media uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, and of course on LinkedIn as well. Um, but glad you could join us, uh, join us on the show this, this evening. Uh, again, uh, just a few more quick announcements. Uh, starting March 2nd, we'll begin this year's Coach's Corner segment. Uh, for those of you that have never tuned in before, basically uh, we have a panel discussion at the beginning, uh, the first hour of each uh, program on Golf Talk Live, and then the second hour of the program, uh, I have, of course, uh, my guest interviews like I will be having tonight. Um, but for this next couple of weeks, uh, until that time, I'm just going to be doing just some straight interviews just for the, uh, first few shows of the year. And then we'll get right into the full schedule on March 2nd. But as I mentioned, my very special guest tonight is, uh, Bill Abrams. Uh, he's PJ professional and owner and director of instruction for golf solutions Academy, at Bell Merrill Woods at, in Crate, Illinois, and also at the Carolina club in Margate, Florida. A little bit more about Bill. He's uh, the 2015 Illinois PGA Player, uh, Professional of the Year and uh, also the 2015 and 2016 uh, Golf Range Association of America's Top 50 Growth of Game Teacher, as well as the U.S. Kids Golf Top 50 Master Teacher and a whole other uh, host of uh, accolades as well. And uh, But let's get him on the show here since uh, we've started a little bit late and help me welcome my very special guest, uh, PGA Professional Bill Abrams. Thanks Good for evening, Bill. Us, Welcome to the show. Yep. Thanks, Ted. <laughs> Sorry about the technical delay. Yeah, yeah, you probably can blame it on your on your yeah. guest because I'm usually the guy at the grocery store that gets in the uh, express line. If you get in behind me, it's the let's get out of here by dark line. So blame it on me. <laughs> uh, well, I pre I appreciate it, and well, you know, I I usually call in, of course, and, and get everything set up a little bit earlier, which I did tonight, and I couldn't right. figure out and. You know, I'm, I'm like you. Once technology kind of wraps its uh, brain around me, I just kind of uh, sort of throw it to the wind. But uh, yeah. nevertheless, we're here now. And, and, and again, I just want to apologize for the listeners out there. The first few minutes, just uh, for those of you that may be tuning in a little bit later in the show, uh, if not live, and you're going to listen to it uh, in the recorded version a little bit later on, uh, just sort of fast forward through the first 10 minutes of the show because it's pretty much nothing but dead air anyway. So, but Bill, uh, again, I apologize uh, to you, of course, my guest, but welcome to the show and, and let's have a good show uh, uh, despite the fact. Um, you got it. Thanks again for having me. I appreciate it very much, Ted. Yeah, not, not a problem. Um, I want to talk about a couple of things. One, one of the things that really intrigued me um, about your abilities is, is you're not just a, a great teacher professional and coach as well, um, but you're also very skilled in club fitting. Uh, you've got a lot of things. We're going to talk about that, and that's really what I want to talk to you about tonight. Uh, we'll talk about some other things as well, but uh, I want to really give you a chance to, to, to do that. But first and foremost, let me give you an opportunity, since I didn't do a great job uh, with the delays. Um, just tell the folks a little bit more about yourself, sort of how you got into golf and, and uh, why you got into golf, and just a little bit about your background. Yeah, it's, uh, I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania um, and a very little town with a very wonderful, short but uh, challenging golf course. I've been working in the golf industry basically since 12 years old and doing everything you can imagine from the ground up at, the, uh, at a golf facility. And it's just always been a passion of my life and uh, seeing players really, really enjoy this game. And I feel that's part of what we don't have now is, is that pure enjoyment of players. We have people leaving and lapse players and 
you know, to me, one of the things that I, I really want to see players do is enjoy this game because it's wonderful. It's a great, great opportunity to enjoy the great outdoors and hit some good shots along the line. And, you know, that's basically who I am and what I am. I've worked at uh, several facilities over the years and uh, developed a pretty good rapport with players. And, uh, you know, my, my whole idea as we, as we speak is to specialize in making players smile. And that's the biggest thing we need to do uh, this day and age. So... You know, one of the one of the interesting things. I just want to just sort of um, read a little snippet, if you will, out of your philosophy. I got this, of course, off your website. And and one of Bill's uh, part of Bill's philosophy is is he believes in coaching that provides result based and common sense long term solutions. And one of the things that I think is important about that and is I think too often people are looking for a quick fix. They don't want to sort of work on things to progress, and and they think that they're going to get an overnight. Uh, quick fix, if you will, or a Band-Aid to a problem that they've maybe been dealing with for several years, and that's not always the case. It, it's, a, it's sort of, a, if you will, a work in progress with a lot of uh, our amateur or, or uh, high-handicap players out there, and one of the things I like about your philosophy is you emphasize the fact that you want to get results uh, with your um, dealings with your various students. So talk a little bit about why why that's important and why some of the students are feeling out there that they're not getting those results. Well, you know, a few things that we hear, some common threads that you hear around golf instruction. I don't want to take a, a, a lesson because this, this fell, I got screwed up last time I did and I got messed up and my game got worse. And we hear it so many times, even from coaches that say you're going to get worse before you get better. I feel in my yeah. business, it's malpractice if that player doesn't get better. And we need to see that in a, in a rapid we're, – we're in a FedEx syndrome society now where everything has to happen yesterday and two hours ago. Right. And what we need to be able to do is, is accelerate the process. As I tell people, you know, everybody comes to me and asks, I want to be a more consistent player. There's two things as a human right. being I've found that we can do consistently. Stand up to the golf ball correctly and think. And both of those get intertwined at a lot of times. And if we get those two things a little fouled up, your results aren't going to be there. So, we, you know, those are the first areas that we have to look at is getting you approaching the ball and standing up correctly to the ball on a consistent basis and then getting a, a consistent thought process. When that happens, now your ability to hit good shots and see results very quickly, it increases dramatically. You know, and that, that's, a, that's a great point. You know, I think one of the problems, and, and you may uh, agree partially or you may agree totally, um, you know, if you look at somebody like Jack Nicholas, of course, he, was, he really thought his way around the golf course. He wasn't necessarily one of the best um, ball strikers on tour uh, in, in his prime. Uh, certainly could hit it a mile um, in, in his younger days and that. Um, and, he, and he was consistent in parts of his game, but other areas he wasn't as consistent. But he was a great thinker um, and, and a strategizer, if you will. Do you think that part of the problem, Bill, is that a lot of players, instead of thinking before they execute the shot, think when they're standing over the ball and they get too many signals going through their, their brain, if you will, and are just overthinking the process? Absolutely correct. There is no doubt about that. I feel, you know, one of the things we have to do is we have to be decisive behind the ball when we're picking our target and then get over it and have your, your thought, your operative thought over the ball and get it done. Because that, you know, once you start to have that shadow of a doubt, then you're, then you're going to have a high incidence of less than quality shots in, in nice terms. <laughs> well, you're right. And, and I think, 
I guess the point that I was trying to make too is is you know a player like Jack particularly, uh, and obviously Tiger uh, more recently, you know thought about what they needed to do, and were looking for the results that they wanted. But once they stepped on the ball, they might have had one maybe a swing thought, or they might have had one thought in their mind as they were over the ball, whatever that may be. Right. But they weren't sitting there and, and letting all kinds of, and I think that's what happens. That internal dialogue gets you know into an overload if you will, when, when some amateurs particularly get over the ball. And what ultimately ends up happening is they don't know what to do. And that's why you see, right. for instance, and I'm sure you've seen this many, many times, you'll see them even on the practice uh, tee that they'll stand over the ball for a, an ungodly amount of time before they actually hit a golf ball. And yes, you're, absolutely. You can almost imagine. You know, you can almost imagine what is this? What is this person thinking about? Why are they? You know, why are they taking so long to execute a shot? It's funny you bring that up, Ted. I refer to that as the mental rolodex of golf tips. We hit one bad shot, right. and then all of a sudden that little wheel spins in your head. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Where my focus is when I'm coaching a player is to pare it down to one key setup idea when they're getting set to the ball, and then one key swing thought. When we can focus and, and pare that down that way, we see success happen so much better. And it doesn't matter what level player, whether it's a, a weekend 28 handicap or a, a collegiate player or a high-level junior or a mini-tour player. When you start getting those thoughts wandering, standing over the ball, you, become, you lack decisiveness. You, you say, okay, go ahead and hit. It'll be okay. And then you know, a devastating shot happens and ruins a round of golf really fast. Yeah, and, and you know we see this time and time again, and, and you know you you can't emphasize enough to players that you know there certainly is a, a thought process that goes into um, you know in preparation for a shot or preparation for a round. But once you get out there on the golf course uh, and are ready to actually hit the golf shot, you have to sort of uh, not necessarily clear your mind completely, but you have to focus on that one or in some cases, I mean, depending on the player, maybe even two. Uh, very simple swing keys or, or, or mm-hmm. thought keys, if you will, to, to, to trigger and initiate the golf swing. And then once they do that, that's it. Now, after the shot, you know, if they want to analyze or something like that, that's fine. But I think the problem is, is people don't understand how to prepare themselves. And, and that goes into obviously their pre-shot routines and things like that. Right, right. And, and I, I find with my players, and I you know, really try to stress this, that the pre-shot routine, especially when you're, you're deciding and, and making your decision on the shot, is more about observation than anything else. Where's the wind blowing? Where's the tee box pointing me? This is one that amateurs, I find, all the time mess up. Especially some of the older, more mature golf courses, those tee boxes are going to aim you into trouble. If you're not aware right. of that... You go ahead and, and line yourself up with the, with the sterile environment of the tee box. Now, all of a sudden, it's pointing you left in the trees. You end up left in the trees with a good shot. A- average player will say, well, I must have made a bad swing and pulled it and not gone back and observed what was going on, uphill shot, downhill shot. Is the wind really helping me? These things are very, very easy to um, decipher and to figure out for any player and now what that does is builds confidence. So now I know it's an uphill shot. The wind is blowing from the left. Vice versa, the tee box is pointing me to the right, pointing me to the left. Now you understand that that does nothing but build confidence. That pre-shot routine is, is built there to build confidence in you. So you know you're, you're inputting all the data. Now all of a sudden the shot becomes ready to go. Right. And there's also a post-shot routine, and that gives you an opportunity to assess what just happened. 
right. and, and right. make you know whatever changes you may need to do, uh, you know, right. for for your next shot or or something else. But um, I, again, I think what happens is you know there's sort of a mind meld, if you will, out in the golf course with a lot of amateurs out there, especially right. some of our our high handicappers, and they just get you know, so much in there sort of clouding and, and it becomes almost like a brain fog, I guess, is the way to describe right. it. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely does. They start to think of every swing thought tip that they had and getting back to your post shot routine. And one of the things that I really work hard with my, with my players is, and uh, you know, I would never say I chastise them, but we're on the practice range or on the golf course doing a playing lesson. Well, what did I do wrong there? I don't focus. I try not to focus right. on what you did wrong. Let's focus on what you need to do to make the shot fly correctly. By skipping that negative right. step in that post-shot routine, I, I notice a huge, huge development mentally with players. They get away from blaming themselves for anything. Now they step into a sh- the next shot. Okay, I know what I need to do. I need to have my right toe pointing at the ground to finish a shot correctly instead of right. what did you do wrong on the previous shot. You know, and exactly. And, you know, the other thing, Bill, too, is I think this is really what differentiates um, – the, the better players, the professionals, you know, compared to the amateurs is the professionals know what to focus on. They've been trained. They, they've, you know, through repetition, through training and coaching, they understand that when they hit a bad shot, they know it's going to happen um, more often than not, but they're able to focus on the things that they need to do in order to correct that without dwelling on negative. I mean, they all have a bad hole. They all have a bad right. shot. Sometimes they might right. have a couple, but Throughout the course of the round, they're not sitting there thinking five holes ago. Now, maybe after the round, they may talk about it, and, right. and, and you know, in the post round, but they're not going to sit if they have a bad, uh, you know, hole number three, let's say, and you know, they're playing at Augusta. They're not going to sit there the rest of the round and dwell on what they did on, on hole number three. They're going to move exactly. on to the next hole, right? And execute the, the shots they know they do need that, to, but to get even whatever score they're, they're mm-hmm. right. The successful ones do right. that, but we'll even see sometimes some of the more accomplished players, they'll, they'll start tinkering and their brain starts moving too much and they paralyze themselves through analysis. And that's the last thing we want to do when you're on the golf course. You want to be able to see it, hit it, and chase it. It's really you know, getting down to simple enough terms, primitive terms, that's where we need to be. And you'll even see some very accomplished players start to get themselves into a little bit of a, a mind mix. I mean, you can even argue Tiger Woods over the last few years with all the iterations of his swing. He was caught a lot of times in competition between two or three different swings. It didn't work for him mentally, and you could see him playing golf swing instead of golf. And that has been a a big detriment to his scoring ability over the last seven or eight years. Right. And and I think another thing, too, that you you will see, uh, again, with our our high handicappers, is in the process of making swing changes – uh, instead of sticking with what they've learned, they will uh, more often than not in a, in a pressure situation will revert back to old habits because right. it's comfortable for them, especially if they haven't been working on the changes very long. Now, once they've crossed that threshold and are confident with those changes and have had some success with them, right. then they're okay. But until they, they sort of reach that plateau, that often happens as well. They start getting into well, old habits yeah. because – right it's an old comfortable shoe so yeah we'll we'll um, see that a lot and that's one of the things that i i always try to emphasize to players is we want to make practice challenging to make it almost more difficult than the golf course will be 
building the routine in. So they have confidence in what they're doing. So they don't, when they walk from the practice range to the first or tenth tee, that little magnet that resides there, and I joke about this, that drains all of our golf knowledge and golf ability away from us, they can bypass that and go right to the tee and have some confidence knowing what they're doing. Right. Um, now, I want to. I mentioned earlier at the beginning, uh, once we got on air, one of the things that I wanted to, to talk to you about tonight, because, you know, we've touched a little bit about this uh, over the last few years on the show, but we've really never sort of dug into it. And I know that, you know, you're, um, as, as many good pros uh, recommend highly, uh, is that we're fitted properly for equipment. So I, I know we've got some points that we want to cover tonight, and I want to cover them individually. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and sort of, sort of, you know, melting them all into one. And, and the first thing is, um, why is it important, number one, to get fit? Well, the, the biggest key is, and we'll use, I'll use an analogy of another activity. Say I'm going to take dancing lessons at Fred Astaire Dancing Studio. I wear a size 36 trousers. Say I walk in there with a size 42 on. Or I wear a size 12 right. shoes and I walk in with a size 6 on. What is my likelihood of getting the most out of that, that coaching session if I'm not wearing the proper clothing? And people will argue one way right. or the other. And I feel even with a, with a beginning player, they are the ones that, that benefit from that most. If I take a scratch player or one of the mini tour players I work with here in Florida and give them an ill-fit set of equipment, they're still going to shoot a pretty good round. But if I take right. that, that player who's brand new – um, say a, a, a lady that is five foot five and her husband is six foot four and is a very strong swinger and she comes with his clubs, the likelihood of her succeeding at this game is going to be very poor. Um, we have to look at right. weight, length, grip size, um, the line go a little bit. And we don't have to get the player a full set of clubs, especially the newer player. It, it just benefits your ability to learn the proper swing mechanics. We can get you into the proper posture. I'm, I'm six foot five. If I play with a set of clubs that are right. standard rack length and flat, the ability for me to, to make a consistent swing has gone down the drain. Vice versa, right. if somebody that's five foot five plays with my clubs, the same thing holds true. And I think it's, it's been oversold or undersold to some people that, you know, a, a rack set of clubs is going to work perfectly for them. And we're not talking you have to fit an entire set. If I get a beginner, I'll do a sand wedge, a nine iron, seven iron hybrid and putter. And making sure right. that the lengths and weights and the grip size are proper for the player and the amount of time that they have to spend and hit some shots, you see a, a tremendous difference in it. And I've also done something, and it's a little gutsy on my part, I do a buyback. If they quit playing golf in 18 months, I'll buy that set of clubs back from them at a, you know, at a little bit of a discount. But I've never had to take right. one back in 20 years. So, you know, that right. will go to show that they stick with the game if they get into it the right way. Yeah, and, and you, you raise a very interesting point because you, you're exactly right. I think, you know – and, and I'm sure I understand part of the reasons why it's done, but, you know, a lot of beginners to, to the golf game, of course, they, uh, you know, maybe you want to start with a with a, a basic set off the rack thinking, well, you know, I right. don't want to make a huge investment because I don't know if I'm going to like it. But as you said, if you're, if you're taking on the challenge of learning the game, then you need to be properly fitted. Uh, and again, as you said, you don't have to get all 14 clubs. You can just get a, a select few that, that you're going to more than likely use in most cases out in the golf course and start with mm -hmm. that and build as you, you know, develop the skill and, and develop right. the enjoyment for the game. And in that way, it's, it's still a minimal cost 
uh, or investment, if you will, but at the same time, you're, you're increasing the, the, a greater chance of success if you're, as you said, being fitted properly. So I guess another question, too, and it sort of falls into what we just talked about, is a lot of people ask themselves, well, am I good enough? They think only the pros or, or a, a scratch player, let's say, as an example, uh, are the ones that need to, to be fit for golf. Um, so a lot of players, of course, uh, especially high handicappers, ask themselves, well, am I good enough? Uh, you know, do I really need to, to be, uh, you know, fitted for, for a set of clubs? And the answer, of course, is yes. Um, yes, for, absolutely. For and, and we see this and, a lot, even with driver fitting. You know, we'll have a shaft that's a little too heavy, a little too light, bad loft, just that little tweak. And even something as simple as, as the grip size and composition. I mean, let's face it, one of the fitting aspects that players don't pay attention to enough is their their golf glove and their grips. You know, I fit everything from shoes to grips to the whole club to the golf ball because shoes, you play with every shot with these these tools. And if they don't suit the way you play, the likelihood of you being able to get as good as you possibly can is eliminated. You just really are not going to get as good as you can unless your tools are – dialed into what you uh, what your person what your personal thumbprint and dna are you know and and, and that's a very interesting point too um that you mentioned about the shoes um and, and you know more often than not you'll see and i don't i'm sure you've come across this yourself but people forget the importance of shoes it's not just a matter of slipping on any pair of shoes there's a reason golf shoes are designed the way they are um obviously years ago we had the the uh the steel uh, spikes and of course they've they've changed that now and come up with something different uh, for obvious reasons to protect the uh, uh, the damage you know preventing damages and stuff on the golf courses. Mm-hmm. But I've seen this many many times where players will come out they get a comfortable pair of shoes they've had for a few years which is fine, but they don't change out the spikes uh, which right. can be very easily done or they're missing a couple here and there. Right. And absolutely they don't realize that that. That actually, you know, the whole purpose of having those those spikes there is to create a stable base uh, and a stable foundation for the golf swing. And if you're missing, you know, a couple on this side and a couple on that side over there, you're not really in a good balance, correct? Right, absolutely. Um, there's two pieces of equipment we play every shot with. That's the golf ball and the shoes. And mm-hmm. with the shoes, I, I uh, did a little bit of the research with FootJoy a couple years ago with the uh, body track, with the pressure on the ground and your interaction to figure yes. out the sole type, how the player works. We've, with the advent of, of spikeless shoes, we've seen a lot of players go to the, to the spikeless soft sole shoes. But one of the detriments to that, when I found players that really interact with the ground and really push off their back foot to get through, that spikeless shoe does not provide them enough sta- stability and base to be able to do that. Now, if we have a player that more or less rolls on their ankles hitting through when they shift their weight, that spikeless shoe will work a little bit better. So, you know, it, it's a matter of three to five miles an hour of club head speed that we can, we can lose by having the, the, either a too stable shoe or a too neutral or flexible shoe. And, you know, you would think, oh, that doesn't really matter. But, you know, I was, I was absolutely shocked when I, had seen, when I saw the, the results that were coming in. And, you know, mm-hmm. players that were struggling – now we get them on the proper platform, they start playing better because their feet are interacting with the ground the way that they're, you know, the shoe is, is facilitating the interaction with the ground in the way that they do it. Right. And, and I think, too, Bill, that, you know, the other thing, too, that, that people don't really – and I'll give you a good example. Freddie Couples, of course, uh, 
wears a particular brand of, of golf shoe or has for, for right. a number of years that, that uh, are, are exactly what you're talking about. But if mm-hmm. you understand Freddie's swing, um, even though he's generating a lot of club head speed, uh, he, he does that rolling, as you said, uh, right. over his right. ankles, which right. allows him to have that stability. Um, but, you know, there are other players that, you know, really create a, a much more uh, – uh, club head speed or push off, as you said, from the ground, mm-hmm. um, that wearing that particular type style of shoe would be detrimental. So this brings me to, uh, I guess, the next question with, with going back to the clubs for a second is being properly fitted. Give us some specifics of what it will do uh, for your game. Well, one of the things that, that gets very underrated is the start line, where that golf ball starts when you hit a shot. Let's go to an iron, for instance. The lie angle is the most important feature of the, of the iron as we are getting better. That's the angle that the shaft comes out of the ground. A lie angle right. that is too flat, meaning that the toe is going to catch first, will create a right ball flight. Vice versa, a club that's too upright, the heel catches, that creates a left. So it's going to be very hard without manipulation to get that ball on the start line. It's roughly on a five iron on a solidly struck shot. It's about ten and a half feet for each degree you're off. So if somebody's off four degrees, that ball will go 42 feet wide on a solidly struck right. shot. Now, how many times have you heard a player in your foursome say, oh, I hit that one just perfect, and it ended up 50 feet right in the water or 40 feet left in the trees? It might not necessarily be the swing. Right. I'm, not, I'm not saying that's always the case. But what ends up happening is then a player starts to build some manipulation into their swing to get that start line. And that's the last thing that we want to have happen because when we start hitting the edit button too often, you can only hit that so many times, and then all of a sudden it's going <laughs> to stop responding to you. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're exactly right. And, and I think that club fitting has really been, for, for the amateurs, has been uh, underrated. I think uh, a lot of... Um, you know, going back to the question I asked a moment ago is a lot of people ask themselves, you know, am I good enough? Um, it doesn't really matter how good of a player you are. There's, there's obvious benefits that, that you've just discussed um, to be properly fitted. And as you said, even if you only have five clubs in your, in your bag, if that's all you want to mm-hmm. start with as a beginner, right. if they're properly fitted, again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to increase the chances of success. So, um, Obviously, it's going to affect the ball flight uh, on, a, on a well-struck shot. Um, what about the weight, though? You know, th- this is something you touched on, uh, you know, especially for women that sometimes maybe play their, right. their husband's uh, older set and they've got a, you know, it's a heavier shaft and, and so forth, or club head. Um, how important is the weight, and how do you decide whether well, it's enough or too heavy or too light? Right. The weight, the weight is a huge, huge issue from driver all the way through the wedge. Um, we get a club that's too light. That golf ball is going to flutter. It's going to deviate from its line. We're going to get too much backspin on it. Um, one that's too heavy, the ball is going to launch very low. Its tendency is to be a push or a cut to the right for a right-handed player, um, and we, we lack trajectory. The proper weight golf club will give us the trajectory that's going to be acceptable for the ball to land on the green and stop. And far too often, and one of the things that we have to do, when you get with a trained fitter or somebody that knows what they're talking about and is backed up by a good launch monitor, like, say, a Foresight, what they can do is they can get that trajectory up there high enough to allow you to carry the ball further. 
And that's one of the things that, that happens with that shaft weight is we get that club that's too heavy and we start hitting worm burners, for lack of a better term. You hit a make a good swing right. and that ball comes out six feet off the ground with a seven iron, and that's not going to work in any, any golf course. I don't care if you're in Scotland or West Texas. You're still going to have to have a point where you can fly it over bunkers and make it stop. And that's what we look to do is, is the first thing to get that weight right is look at the trajectory of the shot. And we want to go as, as basically as light as possible because the lighter will create a little more speed for a lot of players. But the flip side is when we get too light, now we start to create too much spin, whether it's a driver or an iron, and that could be detrimental depending on the conditions that you play in. Right. And there's also different flexes of shafts. Um, you know, a right, lot of times, right. especially – some, especially for the guys, I mean, I think the, the, the ladies uh, are, are a little bit different, but the guys particularly think that, especially the young guys think, well, I need to be playing a stiff shaft or an extra stiff shaft because I can, right. you know, uh, generate a lot of speed, but that's not necessarily true, correct? No, no, it's not. I, the first place I go when I fit is the weight of the shaft. I, I, I disregard the flex at first because what I want to do is get that weight correct because what happens is if I max you out on, and there's still a little bit of subjective with it, I can set, if I fit you, Ted, and I say, okay, this is the shaft weight, and it's 15 grams lighter than you're used to hitting with your irons, and it doesn't feel right to you, what's the chance of right. you being able to hit a 148-yard shot to a tight flag over water? It's out the door. Right. So we have to always have a little compromise built in there, and that's where the flex comes in. I may have to give you a little lighter shaft that's a little stiffer that builds the feeling in, but the first place I go is weight, especially those of us that grew up playing dynamic gold and 125 yeah. <laughs> to 135-gram shafts. If I all of a sudden right. put a 75-gram iron shaft in there, it's going to be <laughs> lights out because you're not going to have any feel with that. So my point would be I'd, I'd try to – ease it down until I found that weight that was good, then start messing around with the flex to get the proper feel in there for you with the kick and everything on the shaft. And that's a little different than most players um, and most coaches will do it in fitters, but I, I like to go weight first because that's the first comfort zone for a player. What tends to be typically, Bill, tends to be uh, the most common faults, if you will, for, for the average player that maybe obviously either hasn't been uh, fitted or maybe not properly fitted tends to be some of the key things. Does it tend to be playing, uh, you know, too heavy uh, of shafts? Is it uh, not the right flex, uh, not the right lie angles? What, or is it a combination of everything? I, I think it's a combination of everything. Let's start with the driver. Um, I see too often players with, they have very high spin. They can't drive the ball very straight. Um, and their, their launch angle is horrible. We have to make sure that that launch angle is a little bit more hefty. We want it up a little bit. And I always, it's, it's always amazing when I talk to players about the, the um, loft on their driver, knowing that Dustin Johnson plays with a 10.5 to 10 and three quarters, depending on how they tweak it on a weekly basis. People would automatically yeah. think as far and long as he hits it, he's playing with about a six or seven degree loft. But his, his swing right. DNA and his thumbprint, if he played with that, the ball would go sideways crazy. That being said, the first thing that I see is players play with drivers with way too little loft and a little too long a shaft. When that shaft gets a little bit too long, what will happen is the bat, they'll get some crazy amounts of spin on the ball. By shortening the shaft a little bit, they'll take some of that spin off and get that ball to launch high with a lot of speed with, with the proper amount of spin on it because the solidly struck shot with a driver is going to be the one when I get the good launch angle, it'll max out its speed 
we get the spin right, and then all of a sudden they're going to be picking up 15 or 20 yards pretty fast. What about – and a question I get quite often, too, from a lot of players is, you know, what driver – you know, should I be using? And, and let me just preface this a little bit, Bill, before you answer that. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously there's a certain person, personal preference. Maybe you have a, a specific brand that you like to, to right, play with, right. you, you know, whether it be Callaway, Titleist, or what have you, uh, TaylorMade, so, so on and so forth. Um, but sometimes it's, it's okay to mix it up. But typically, how does a player select the right driver for them? What are some of the, the key elements? Well, in, in some of the, the things I give a disclaimer, you. I'm on staff with Ping and I've, you know, I've sure. represented them for several years. Um, the things that we, we look for is if we look at a matrix with a, with a bar, uh, uh, a horizontal bar on the left and a parallel or, um, or, I mean, excuse me, an upright bar on the left and a horizontal bar to the right, what we need to do is get the highest up in that right-hand corner, the, the highest spin, and, and consistent launch is where we have to go. Now, there's all the products on the market are very, very good today. There's certain heads, though, that some of them are a little more spinny, some of them are a little less spinny, um, and then we have to start playing around with the shaft to make up for that. So, you know, the first thing we have to look at with a player is really get the DNA of what their swing is. What is their normal swing with their driver? Are they launching it high? Are they launching it low? Do they have left to right spin, right to left spin? Because we can build some biases into that driver to take away their, their, their undesirable shot and effectively take right. one side of the golf course away. So I'm not saying there's a right way or a wrong way, but we have to you know, have that good soul search and get on a launch monitor with a trusted fitter and somebody that teaches. And I think that's something that, that's a little bit lost today is that the fitter, fitting and teaching has to go hand in hand. It's not just a case where just a person can fit, and I've seen this happen too often. People without really a good understanding of the golf swing are trying to fit golf clubs, and I'm sure I'm going to upset some people with this, but they don't do as good a job with the fit because they don't know what their eye is looking for a lot of times. And, um, you know, that's the thing, and I, I feel sometimes that coaches don't do a real good job of fitting either because they don't know the dynamics of the club. I think the both of them go hand in hand, and that's what, you know, that's where an amateur, a player that's looking for a driver can really get the best advice on it when they can soul search and look in the mirror and say, okay, this is what my driver does now. If my driver does this, now it will perform that much better. Right. And I think, obviously, and I'm sure you would agree with me, I think uh, many, you know, courses across the country, uh, throughout the year offer these uh, certainly every I think just about every geographical area here uh, in the US uh, has demo days right um, what a great opportunity to get out there and try some of the different uh, right. clubs out there and and sort of select from a visual standpoint obviously I, again there's a certain visual component I mean everybody likes to you know boy I like the look of this driver here or I like the look of that driver over there so that's a good starting point and then mm-hmm. let the, the fitting process once you've, you've sort of found something right. that, that fits your eye but um, but more often than not, again, people will go out and, and get something without really um, just because, you know, their, their buddy in the mm-hmm. foursome swears by it, it, but it may not necessarily be the right club for them, correct? No, no, it, it absolutely isn't. And, you know, when we saw the, the major league adjustability that came out with TaylorMade years ago, um, people didn't understand where the weights went on the club and the loss and everything. And I can't tell you how many times – I almost had to take the wrench away from some of the <laughs> some of the amateur players. I had to have a, like a library card where they yeah. came in and checked in with <laughs> me to get the adjustment because they'd have it set up. They want to hit a high draw and they've got it set up for a low fade. 
And they said, I can't hit this thing less, right. less of 3 o'clock, and I make some adjustment on the driver, and all of a sudden the thing goes back to straight. So, um, you know, be, having somebody that's knowledgeable in the ball flight there as well is a very – that's a very big key component of it because with the adjustability we can, we can really – I don't say deviate, but we can eliminate one of the bad shots in the bag for a player and allow them to play just one side of the golf course versus waiting for that mystery swing when it misses both ways. Well, and, and I think that it goes back to what, what I said in the very beginning. I think that sometimes you know people have expectations, and it goes back to really what you talk about in your philosophy is that you want to be able, as a, as a coach or as a teacher professional, you want to be able to provide those results uh, for your mm-hmm. students. And right. number one, if they're, if they're not properly fitted with, with the right equipment, there's going to be some challenges there that you're going to be faced with. Um, right, ultimately, right. If, the, if they're you know, getting caught up in, in swing mechanics all the time, especially out in the golf course, you know, on the practice tee and during practice sessions, that's where you're going to work on different uh, mechanics of the mm-hmm. swing. But when you get on that golf course, you don't need to be thinking about, well, I've got to get into this position here or, or I've got to make sure I do this. Um, when you're trying to execute shots around the golf course, especially if you're playing in right. a tournament, because you're just going to kill yourself. Right, um, and that's where I think you, you hit on a, a key there with the practice session. I think one of the things I see as a big detriment that players do to themselves practice-wise is they go there and you hit their full bucket working on mechanics. You have to leave a portion of your, your practice to your, uh, to your process, to your routine and, and target orientation. So you get very comfortable with that on the practice facility. Now it takes it onto the golf course for you. The problem that I see is, you know, sometimes players will come out with a big bucket. They don't use any of their routine or their or their setup routine. Right. Now and don't pick a target, and then they just start firing them with no accountability into a big wide field. And now they get on the golf right. course where it's a narrow field, and there's a lot of accountability because you have to chase that golf ball that might have cost you five dollars. So. <laughs> Well, that's a- and, and you're right. You know, and the other thing, Bill, I think, and I think this is, and I'm sure you can relate to this, uh, you don't see this very much anymore, certainly not uh, anywhere I've been, but, you know, years ago when I first started playing golf as a youngster, uh, we used to, what they term to is we had to shag our balls, which meant when you right. went out in the pra- some of the golf courses earlier on, you know, when you went out to a practice area, you had to go and fetch the golf ball. So right. that gave you some incentive to take a, be a little bit more choice and, and how you, you know, executed those shots. So you just didn't sort of willy-nilly hit them wherever because right. you had to go and pick them all up. We so, didn't practice you know, much, maybe many drivers back then. <laughs> no. So, it was a lot more wedge play. Right, more wedge play, which, you know, maybe, Bill, that's not a bad idea. You know, we always talk about yeah. growing the game and getting more people into the game, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. But, um, you know, maybe that's not a bad idea. Maybe some of these uh, golf courses need to go back to something like that, is, is getting people to get out there and, and having to shag their balls after, uh, right. as opposed to, you know, letting somebody come by with, with a, a big old scoop and, and, you know, picking them up there. But, right, um, right. You know, but, but you're, you're exactly right. We've talked about this many, many times, especially in our Coach's Corner segments uh, here on the show um, over the years, about, you know, really having a good practice session. Now, when you're when you're preparing your student, especially when you're working with a new student, um, obviously everybody has their own routines that, that they've developed. Maybe if they played for a few years, um, do you try to guide or coach them into uh, a, a, you know, finding the right practice session for them uh, or you kind of tailor, you know, be a little more custom. How do you, how do you, I, I try to do it custom for the individual. Some of some of the, is, is their commitment and their time frame that they have available to them. I'll generally 
build some drills in that they can do at the practice range, but also give them some things that they can do at home, they can do it in the office, on speakerphone. I try to find out a little bit more about the player and what their time commitment can be. And then we start to build a routine around that. Because, you know, we'd all love to spend 8 to 12 hours a day practicing or playing. That's not available to us. So I need to find the shortest route that we can get to that that rapid improvement. And sometimes that means maybe taking 10 or 15 swings at night in the backyard versus going to the range once a week and trying to pound out the biggest bucket they can find. And, you know, some of the range owners don't want to hear me saying that, but, you know, a lot of times we're talking about the the long-term growth of the player. When they get the motor skill working the right way, now all of a sudden the ball gets in the way and they're dazzled with some of the shots that they can hit. Exactly. And and I think it goes to, uh, and you're right, and I think one of the things uh, that needs to happen here is there has to be uh, a level of fun for the player. If they're not enjoying it, if they're not having uh, a good time and they're struggling all the time, then they're not apt to, not only are they not apt to play golf, they're certainly not going to want to go out uh, and practice. And this is why some of the components we're talking about tonight, uh, club fitting and, and you know, mm-hmm. building a good practice session, are, are paramount. Because what ultimately happens, and I think especially in today's game with, with all the equipment uh, out there and, and the, the golf balls uh, changing the way they have and, you know, the length of the courses being what they have been for, for the last you know decade or two, um, a lot of players have really struggled out there. And I'm talking, of course, the, the, the right. amateur players. Um, right. and, and I think ultimately what, what has happened is there's become a, a lot of anxiety and a level of frustration to the point where people just say, Shh, you know, I'm not going to get any better. I've taken lessons. Right. It's just not, you know, working. And they don't want to make that commitment. So how do we re-energize that? What do we have to do in the industry, as an industry, not individually, as an industry, right. to sort of reignite that fire? We have to find accessible ways. Hitting good golf shots is the number one reason people come back and play. That's pretty simple. Sure. We have to dedicate ourselves as an industry, and we've kind of done that half-heartedly, and I don't even think, I'd say maybe even quarter-heartedly, into really getting good quality instruction in front of people. You know, it's, it's people that are dedicated to making players play better is what we have to make our focus on, nothing else at this point in time. And I may irritate and ruffle some feathers by saying that, but there's really no way that people will come back and play unless they're hitting good shots and they're seeing results and they're seeing themselves score better. Pretty, pretty simple. I mean, it's a simple, it's a simple concoction. It's a simple solution. But do we want to step up and do that? And I think that's the biggest thing, and, and it's pretty well proven. Folks that take lessons – and see improvement, we'll spend more money at the club, they're going to play more rounds of golf, and we have so many lapsed players, people that 10 years ago may have played twice a week or played three to four rounds a month, now they're playing twice a summer. And that's just, to me, is yeah. just unacceptable. They've lost some of the thrill of playing because of the time constraint, they're not hitting good shots, a myriad of different reasons. So in the industry, we have to offer things um, we do one thing at Balmoral Woods we've done for the last few years. We call it uh, Good Evening Golf. After 5 p.m. at night, we charge $2 a hole. So you have to play a minimum of three. So for $6, you can go out on the golf course and play three holes in the evening. That's a great bunny right. slope for players that are newer to it or people that haven't played. Now all of a sudden, one of the fears yep. is a, a, a person hasn't played in two or three years, 
they may not want to take a lesson, but they want to get they want to have a little nibble to get back in because they're going to play in two weeks on Saturday morning with some of their colleagues from work. So now they come out to Balmoral Woods, they play four times, they play three holes, they've got their sea legs back to them. Now guess what? They get back into playing, and that's yeah. you know little things that we can do as an industry that can that can beat the time constraint, but also can put it in a non-threatening, in a very, very relaxed environment to get people back out playing more. And we need to do more of this. And, I, and the time is not to think about it next year. We have to do it right now. And, you know, again, I, I won't, don't want to get on the soapbox about it, but I think that's one of the things we have to do is get this game to be a lot more fun for every level of player. Get some of these laps players back into the game because they already know the drill. They know how to play. They know how to where to park the cart. It's just a matter of somebody that used to play four rounds a month, now they play twice a summer, getting them to play two rounds a month. And you can see what that would do across the, the nation and, and North America. What would that do to the rounds of golf being played? It would be astronomical. Right. And you know something else too, Bill, and I, I've mentioned this on, on both of the programs that, uh, that I host um, in, in discussions with some of the other professionals. One of the things too I think that has really – uh, been lacking now. I'm certainly, I, I don't want to say that it doesn't exist, but it's not as prevalent as it used to be. You know, when I grew up, you know, I played golf with my father. My father was the one that introduced me to golf. Uh, right. You know, we went out and, and, and played, and he was a member, and, and so on and so forth, as I'm sure um, might have been in your case. Uh, I think there's been a disconnect, obviously, with families, and that's a whole that's a whole different program. This we're not going to get into that, but right. Um, but there has been a disconnect, and you don't see unless specifically. Um, kids have a genuine interest in playing maybe on some sort of professional level. Um, there isn't sort of that family component anymore on the golf course. And I think really what would no. help the industry a lot is to um, change their marketing a little bit instead of, you know, and, and we're going to talk about juniors here in just a moment, but, you know, obviously we want to get the younger, the better to get them into golf. Cause once they're exposed at a, an early age, even if they don't, you know, want to play on, on, mini tours as they develop or play collegiate right. golf or what have you, um, there's a good chance that at some point later in their life, they've already been bitten by the bug, they're going to take that on. Um, but you don't see that much anymore. And I, th I think that the industry would, would probably benefit greatly if their marketing was switched a little bit to get more families out on the golf course as opposed to just targeting individuals. Well, and that's one of the things that we had a family rate. We were one of the first. We were the first club in Illinois to put in uh, at Balmoral Woods to put the U.S. Kids Family Tees in. Uh, we used to do a family rate, and then with our Good Evening Golf, that took it away. Any child under 12 comes out with an adult; they don't pay. So you right. know, it, it's you know, a family of four could literally come out for for 12 dollars and play four, three, three holes of golf. And have some fun. If they don't, wow. the children don't have clubs. We have U.S. Kids clubs there. We'll give them a, you know, a nine iron, a hybrid, and a putter, and they're all set to go. And that's one of the things is the owners and the the operators they need to understand this because so often, you know, it's a, a case where sometimes they don't want children around. I mean, I had, uh, you know, there was a case years ago. My uh, my youngest son Tommy, very good player. He played in U.S. Kids Worlds and the Optimist, and he was a pretty good. He was a three handicap. He happened to be 13 right. years old, and I called a a very highly ranked municipal course that I won't say in a in a state somewhere um, on the East Coast, and they <laughs> told me, well, he's got to be 16 to be able to play. I said, he'll beat every guy you got out here right now from the back tees. 
No, he's got to be 15 right. or 16 to play. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Where are you going with this? Now you're a government-owned facility and not letting a young player play. You should be doing just the opposite, encouraging this. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that the, the owners and operators have to look themselves in the mirror and really understand what they're here about. Is it, is it customer service or is it customer satisfaction? When our, when our players are getting satisfied, they're going to play more and the game is going to grow. If they're not satisfied, it's going to be a, a tough thing. And I'm sure I will ruffle some feathers if people hear this, but, sure. you know, that's the, the, the strict facts that I see on the ground here. And, you know, it's something you're, you're absolutely right. The family play is just it's a huge component of growing the game. You know, we can have all the other well, programs, but I'd much rather a family comes in at five because four or five people are getting out of one car than have five individuals come in and get out of five different cars. Because when that's right. all together, and, it works a right. lot better. And, and, and sure, and parents or, or, or the kids, depending on their age, may play individually as well with their friends. And, and I understand that they're – you know, there's in this day and age with so many distractions, whether it be social media or what have you. We talked about this privately when you and I were on the phone there a few weeks back. But um, you know, social media, you know, takes a lot of time. Unfortunately, in families now, the parents sometimes can be just as bad as the kids. But they get you know so enthralled with what's you know happening on Facebook or Twitter or what have you mm-hmm. um, that they just they just don't get out and and you know do a lot of the things that that we used to do growing up. So mm-hmm. this I guess really brings me to a question. Uh, and, and I guess it really depends on, on, you know, the approach that we want to take. But how do we get more juniors into the game? I mean, not every, you know, not every player wants to, to play on, on uh, you know, collegiately or otherwise uh, right. or in the junior, you know, mini tours. What are and we going to involved? Is, is it, you know, as we discussed, I, I think we have to start to offer more recreational and fun things. PGA Junior League is a wonderful idea. It, it's a great way to do it. Um, we do something very similar at our club. Um, you know, we have a bunch of children. We invite the parents out to play uh, at the end of the year. We just have, if they go out as an eightsome, that's fine. You know, we just, we need to encourage those players that aren't necessarily going to be a collegiate player or even a high school player to get the love and the passion of the game. Unfortunately, too often, there's so many coaches that all, they can, all they're concerned about is how many collegiate players they have and how many professional players, which is great. That's, that's a nice thing. But the game will die if we have that many. We need the player to develop the player that their best round might be 82, but they play twice a week. Mm-hmm. That's the player we right. need to develop and get the passion for the game with. And, you know, unfortunately, we have looked away from that a little bit, and we have to get back to the, the simple roots of just finding the beauty and the love of the game. Yeah, and you're exactly right, and, and I think that goes to a great point that I think a lot of, uh, unfortunately, within the industry, you know, as they scan through 50, you know, kids, they're looking for the one or two or three that, that have mm-hmm. that potential and focus on them and, and uh, you know, sort of dangle the proverbial carrot, if you will, in front of them. Mm-hmm. But yes. the, the problem with that is, you know, the other 47 or 48 kids um, may not ever play on, on any sort of professional level but as you said, they may come out twice a week or, or maybe even three right. times a week uh, as they go along. So what do we want to do as an industry? Do we want to just seek, seek out those uh, high-caliber players? And, and that works for, for teaching as well. I mean, you know, right. who wouldn't want to have a, a, a tour player uh, in their repertoire? But at the same time, um, as we know, tour, uh, tour players hop around uh, from time to time. Very few of them stick with a coach long term. Um, right. You know, 
especially if they've had some issues, um, you know, in their swing. Sometimes they're looking for something different. Tiger's, you know, gone through three or four in his career at least. Mm-hmm. Um, other players have well. Some stick with maybe one. So that's another factor as well is, you mm-hmm. know, we've, we've got to make it simple and enjoyable for the kids to get in. Um, and, and I think a couple of things. I'm going to put this out and see what you think about this. We need to get into the school system. Somehow we need to get into the school system, and I'm not talking, again, at the collegiate or even high school level. I'm talking no. about the elementary level. And elementary get grammar even if school. Grammar school, exactly. As an after, even if it's an after-school uh, program to start with, but golf needs to get in like so many other sports. Um, you know, it, it baffles the mind why the powers that be, uh, and I'm talking about the PGA of America and, and, and other uh, mm-hmm. groups and that out there, why they're not aggressively going after that i think this is something that's it's showed great success a friend of mine uh rick grayson he's in springfield missouri has been on this for gosh 20 years and he's got golf in schools and i don't know what the number is it's an astronomical number in that midwest area where he's at that he has golf in the grammar schools and he has little kits of you know ways they can do it in the gym class and and, you know, that's the thing. We have to have the parents also putting some pressure on the administrators to, to get this to go because it's a wonderful opportunity, especially this day and age with the concussions and, and all the other sports. It's a wonderful opportunity for, for young people to get into a game that will last a lifetime. I mean, you know, you play basketball, you play football, that, that ends in your 20s for the most part. Unless you play in the NBA, then it lasts for a little bit longer or you play men's league and things like that. But the, the point is, golf, you can play that cradle to grave almost. And that's the, the beauty yeah. of the game, and I agree with you a thousand percent. We have to do a better job getting it into the schools and getting it into curriculums. There are some movements, but I can tell you, again, my friend Rick Grayson um, in uh, Rivercut Golf Club in uh, Springfield, Missouri, is just absolutely, he is the, the man to talk to about that because he will tell everybody like it is and how to get it into schools. He is, I mean, he's the, the world leader, the industry leader in that. And, you know, I hope nobody would disagree with me that because this man has dedicated his life to, to that and he's done a wonderful job with it. Well, you know, and, and, and uh, by the way, send a feeler out to him, if you will, and tell him I'd love to have him come on the show, and we'll, uh, oh, we'll I talk certainly about will. that specific topic. Um, but, you know, one of the things that kind of disturbed me, and, and I, again, I don't mind on the show, I mean, I, I'm not looking to, to put anybody down or anything like that, but one thing that, that right. bothered me a little bit here uh, over the last year was, and, and again, I'm not going to put out names or that, but there was a gentleman that right. actually uh, used to run a, a very successful, uh, certainly not a major national program, but a program uh, in one of the states that uh, for a number of years, a, a junior program, if you will, uh, kind of got away from it for a little while uh, for one reason or another and decided to sort of rekindle that here in, in North Florida. And the sad part of it was is he ran into somebody else in the business who basically ran him off, didn't want him encroaching on the territory, so to speak. Right. And it was kind of sad in a way because uh, he was very interested in collaborating with this other uh, individual. And I think this is a, a, an issue, too, that really needs to be addressed. I think if you have an opportunity, uh, and again, you don't necessarily have to partner with one another, but that you can do something to help one another to grow the game, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to uh, do that. And if you're going to become territorial and say, well, no, I don't want you anywhere you know, within 1,000 miles of here because uh, I've got right. a good thing going here, uh, I have an issue with that. Yeah, I, I um, think that's, a, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, 
in any any job or any position or any industry sure. that you're in there's there's a lot of provincial and territorial behavior and that's not going to grow the game what is our bottom line it's the satisfaction and the results and the enjoyment of the player and that's the bottom line if we can get more people playing to a competent level the golf course tee sheets will be full there's no doubt about that but the problem is the time yeah. and the the lack of you know, consistent coaching is not there. I mean, it's really not there. And we have to get people accustomed to taking lessons and taking instruction. And it doesn't have to be long-term or anything. It's just getting themselves started and hitting reasonable shots that satisfy them. That's what we need. And there's, you know, like you said, you know, get somebody that wants to get a, a program into the schools or with juniors, and, you know, it just, we don't have a lot of room for that right now. And it's, you know, it's kind of sad, but I want to see this game flourish forever, and we have to get a lot more people playing and a lot more people enjoying it. Right, and and you know the the, the other thing too that that and I, and I know you've seen it. We've talked about this as well um, prior to to coming on the show, but um, you know, last night, for instance, when when I was getting things ready and and posting everything through social media, I just happened to come across uh, one of the golf groups, and of course. Uh, you know, there's always some interesting banter there, but in this particular evening, there was uh, a little more heated discussion. Um, that's certainly not good for the game either. I think people are focusing too much on, um, you know, specific ideas, and and then it gets into you know a, a dogfight, if you will, in, in right. particular forums. Um, you know, that's not helping to move the game forward either. And and I don't understand why this is happening. I mean, we've all can agree and disagree on certain things. Somebody might have a slightly different approach than you and I and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think there's, there's always room for, um, you know, taking a, a different look or a different approach to things, or at least being open-minded to, to that. But I, right. I've seen a tone here over the last few years, and I'm sure you have as well. How do we sort of weed that out as well? What do we do to well, sort of... Well, it's going to be it's going to be there with the with the internet and social media. There's always going to be that person that's going to say the most radical thing that absolutely no. cannot be proved <laughs> and they can't do anything just to make a name for themselves. Right. And I mean, it's like yeah. that in any industry, and that that's the sad part. Um, you know, it's not about the joy of the game. It's about them beating their chest and saying this is the best way to do it. And, you know, I can give you a, a lot of examples. Uh, the great Jimmy Ballard is a good friend of mine, and he's taken his right. fair share of rash criticism over the years unduly. And I can tell you one thing, though, match his record against pretty much anybody. But he takes a beating from a lot of people. And, you know, fair sure. or not. When you're at the top, that's what people are going to do. But at the same token, it's results. You know, it's results. And when players are getting better, you don't have to tell everybody how good you are. They'll find out as a coach how good you are. They'll they'll come looking for you. And you, you know, know that's I, pretty simple bottom line on that. You know, I I, I had the the honor and, and privilege uh, a few years ago. Um, in fact, it was my second year in, in doing this program. Uh, I had the honor of interviewing uh, Billy Casper on the show, mm. and um, you know, he was certainly a golfer that, that I admired. Of course, he didn't get the same fanfare publicly as as obviously Nicholas and Palmer and some of the others, uh, but he was certainly up in that that upper ep- echelon. But oh, again, absolutely. he wasn't. He, he wasn't about, well, hey, you know, it's, and, I, and, I, and I, let me just preface this. I don't want to suggest that the others did, but for some reason, he just didn't have the same, you know, personality. He wasn't about the fanfare. He was about really doing what he needed to do out in the golf course to get the job mm-hmm. done. And 
he wanted to give back to the game. And I, and I shared many, many times uh, on the show before, but a very interesting story that a lot of people may not know. Of course, um, those that, that know or knew Billy uh, also know that, that Johnny Miller uh, and he were, were friends over the years. Mm-hmm. And part of how that relationship developed was back in, I believe, don't quote me now, um, but I think it was in, in 64, I think, uh, at uh, the U.S. Open. I think that was the one that Billy had won. Um, Billy, after the uh, the event one evening, actually um, had a, a meeting that he went to and, and was a, the guest speaker. And a woman approached him and had indicated to, to her to him, excuse me, that um, her son was very interested in, in you know playing golf on a professional level, and she wanted some advice that she could give him. And he basically said, you know, two things. He said, obviously, you know, he needs to go out and work on his game, but he said, as, as a parent just encourage him. Don't push him. Don't, you know, just be there supportive and mm-hmm. so forth. And there were some other things I'm sure that went along. Well, the interesting that uh, about the story that it turned out, uh, Bill was that was Johnny Miller's mother mm-hmm. that was seeking out that advice. And Johnny, of course, took it to heart and, you know, followed Billy for, for many, many years. And then of course, um, you know, got on tour himself and had a great career. But the point that I'm making was that Billy's approach to things were, you know, he wanted to do something to give back. It wasn't about the fanfare. He couldn't care less about the accolades. He just wanted to go out there and play good golf, enjoy it. You know, it wasn't about making a name for himself. It was about the enjoyment of the game. And I think that going back to what you said a few moments ago about some out there that want to just make a name for themselves, you know, it's all about the gotcha questions or it's all about the um, self-promotion. And it's just not doing the game justice. No. No, and that, that's the, you know, that's the sad part about it. And, you know, people are into it for all the wrong reasons. And, you know, I think that's the biggest. It's, it's, you can't get in this business unless you love it. And if you don't love it, right. if you don't love this game, you have no business coaching players. I mean, and, uh, again, I'll ruffle some feathers saying that, but you gotta, you've got to have a passion for it. If you don't have the passion, you're not going to be able to instill that passion into your students to the level that you need to to make them play the best that they can. And that's, you know, right. bottom line there. Right. And I, and I think one of the other disservices, I think, that, that happens in the, the industry as well. And, and again, like you said earlier, it goes really with any industry. But um, there's obviously different approaches to the game. There's different, uh, you know, uh, swing theories out there, if you will. There's different ways to, um, to handle a situation. And, you know, you have to find what works for you. But you also have to keep in mind that we can't put the students all into the same mold. That, no. uh, you know, every student is different. Um, and again, I'm just going to throw an example out there, but, you know, stack and tilt, for, for instance, there's some coaches out there that, that believe wholeheartedly that that's the, the way to go. Uh, and it may work for some students out there, but it's not going to work for every student. So right. there's nothing wrong with that um, uh, approach, but we have to be careful and mindful as professionals that right. we don't, right. you know, we have to look at long term results. We don't need those quick right. fixes and those short term, you know, it's got to be something that lasts for 10 years. When we build those those statistics, injury fee, injury free, good striking has to last for ten years before it can really, in my estimation, have any credibility. A player sticks with it, they do it, and they can last as a very good striker for ten years. Then then I'll give it some some credence, because you know you start throwing everybody into the the same boat, and you know because people think differently. That's our challenge as a coach to interpret how they, you know, to figure out how they, they think and, and how they interpret things and then be able to plug in what we're trying to say to them and get it across them in an effective manner. And, 
you know, the cookie cutter approach doesn't work that way. There's, there's a million different ways to say the same thing and get the effect across and simply put as you're, as you're alluding to. Right. And you know, something too that I, that I, and again, I won't, I won't throw out names uh, in this particular thing, but I, I think there's another uh, that I've seen in social media here recently and, and actually was in the last few days um, where there was a lot of critique of an individual who for many years was a player on tour. Um, it wasn't the critiquing of his playing, it, but as, as a coach. Um, mm-hmm. I think also people misunderstand the fact that just because you know this individual was maybe a, a great player or a good player out on tour doesn't mean that they are a great teaching professional. No, uh, and vice no, versa. No. Somebody, somebody may be right. a great teaching professional, and they're certainly good. Co- in other words, I'll give you an example. David Ledbetter, you know, he's a phenomenal uh, teacher to many, but that doesn't mean he'd be a great tour player. So, no, you know, no. you, you have to have an understanding, and, and I think this is another thing that, that sort of baffles my mind when I see uh, some of these arguments going on in social media about, well, so-and-so, you know, might have played great on the tour, but he, you know, stinks as a coach. Well, right. you know, that's maybe not their, their gift, so... Right, um, and and, and the about- other the the flip side of it too is just because a tour player does it doesn't mean it's correct. That's something that we have right. to get over a little bit too, because sometimes there's things that they can do with compensations and and good hand eye coordination that they can make up for a flaw. But if everybody tries to do that, guess what? It's going to be <laughs> it'll be a train wreck. Well, all you, yeah, and all you have to do, I mean, th- today's game is, is certainly much different than when, when players like, uh, you know, Trevino and Nicholas and, and Player and all these others uh, were out there. I mean, you look at the different dynamic swings uh, of that day compared to now today, everybody kind of looks the same or very similar uh, with few exceptions like a Jim Furyk and, and a few others. But, um, you know, everybody sort of whittle into a same looking swing. But if you look at uh, the few, you know, legends of the game that I just mentioned, their swings were, were very, very different. I mean, especially Lee Trevino. I mean, uh, you know, if you were, if, if Lee came to you today, not knowing who he was as a, you know, as a PGA teacher professional and you saw what he was doing before he even hit the ball, um, you'd be scratching your head and thinking, you know, what are you doing? But well, I, 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 and I'll disagree with you a little on that one, Ted, because <laughs> there's certain things that these players have done footwork wise and setup wise that, you can right. see where they get it, I guess. And, you know, I, I, it, just to a point, I wouldn't disagree wholeheartedly with that, but I can see where right. some people would say, you've got to change this, you've got to change that. But you see the, the little things that, that players do good that all players over the years that have been good have done, and you can see that. It just the body type and the way he sets up looks a little bit different. But when that, that, uh, that iron blade hits the ball, guess what? <laughs> Where's that ball going? That's the and that's really right. the the proof and the punch. So, right, exactly. How you get there doesn't necessarily, uh, and that's right. And that's my point, really, with Lee is is you know his swing was very unorthodox compared to many out in the tour, but he had uh, a lot of good components to his swing that worked, and he was able to make it work. And you know the ball sailed out there uh, where he wanted it to go. He always knew where mm-hmm. he, you know it was going. Yep, um, absolutely. And, and that's really key. You. He was, you know, he was comfortable, and and so why change if it's working? And that's what I right. always say to, you know, students that I work for as well, uh, work with me rather. I, I don't, you know, I don't try to reinvent the wheel. I take what, you know, their natural ability, and I try to, um, you know, expand on that. And obviously, if there's certain issues or certain areas that are that are just not going to work, 
you know, obviously there are changes might have to be made. But, um, you know, I don't if, if, a, if a student has a good grip and, and their stance is, is pretty good, there might be some minor tweaks. But I'm not going to reinvent the wheel because that's what uh, going to your earlier point. You know, if we try to enforce too many changes, then suddenly they're not going to be getting the results that, that they would right. like or that certainly we would like. And they're going to they're going to stop playing. They're just not right. You have back. to start from a building block and move up. And sometimes the little adjustments won't need to be addressed because the, you know, the change in the stance or the change in the posture takes care of that moving down the street and the body motion. So, right, exactly. So let's uh, just in the final few moments here, uh, and and I'm going to let you go for the evening. And I appreciate you, Bill, for for hanging around here. Uh, again, I apologize for uh, earlier mishap, but. Well, um, like I say, blame it on me. Know, it's easy. Getting, <laughs> yeah, uh. <laughs> I just might do that. No, I'm only kidding. Um, but I, I want to take this opportunity since we're we're sort of coming in, uh, especially for for those of us down here in Florida and other parts of the country. We've had a pretty mild winter down here uh, compared to what we normally get. Um, so I, I can really see the, uh, the the golf season getting off to a good start for many people in in other parts of the nation as well, um, with with this milder winter. So what do you want to see happen this year? What are you looking forward most to this year, uh, really starting 2017 off with, with the bang, if you what do you What have you got cooking, in other words? Uh, well, I've got to, uh, to you know, a lot of things year. going. I've got, uh, you know, we do our, uh, a bunch of the teaching with our foresight with the HMT, the launch monitor. We, we can really dial in people's yardages, wedge play, ball flight. It's not just with the launch monitor about doing the driver. It's about dialing in the accuracy of the iron play and the wedges. You know, we'll have body track and be doing some foot joy um, shoe fitting with that as well. Um, those are the nice technical things, but I, I, you know, I'll be offering my wedge schools and scoring clinics throughout the summer at Balmoral Woods as we're leaving Florida here. I'll be back up there uh, end of April um, for the summer season, mm-hmm. and then I come back down in October to uh, Carolina Club in Margate, which is just uh, outside of Coral Springs. Right. Very good. Um, well, I want to thank you, Bill, for, for coming on the show. And, and again, uh, I wish we had have gotten off to a, a little uh, better start, but um, nevertheless, we managed to pull it through. Um, well, the next time we that, will. Uh, so. that, <laughs> yeah, I know we will. Um, for those that, that maybe would like to reach out to you, um, how can they do that? And uh, do you yeah. have a website that maybe Yeah, uh, a couple we, we ways. It's real to? simple. It's just BillAbramsGolf.com. Just B-I-L-L-A-B-R-A-M-S golf.com is my website and I've got contact information there um, if you'd like to email me uh, same thing B Abrams PGA 52 at gmail.com and that, those are the easiest ways to get to me um, on the website is, is really simple with a contact form there and uh, you know it gives a little bit more about me so uh, feel free to take a peek at that and uh, you know hope to hear from anybody soon so perfect um, well, Bill, again, I want to thank you very much for joining me uh, uh, tonight on Golf Talk Live. I appreciate the, the discussion, and uh, I, I, I would say it was kind of a Golf Talk Live light tonight. We're just starting to, to the season off here, and uh, with just some, some fun conversation, talking about some things. And, and, Bill, I know that you're going to be joining in on some of the Coach's Corner uh, panel discussions be, yes. with, with some of your, your fellow professionals out there. And uh, I think what I, I, I'm going to do uh, as well, we'll talk about this a little bit more outside of uh, – uh, outside of the program, of course, but um, uh, in addition to to the um, panel discussions that you'll be joining in, I think I want to have you also come on uh, a separate panel discussion 
that we can talk a little bit more about club fitting uh, and maybe even a little bit more detail and get into some of the specifics of, of yeah, how people absolutely. get fitted and, and so on and so forth the process. Um, so we'll, we'll do that and we'll talk about that afterwards. But again, I want to uh, thank you very much for, for joining me tonight in Golf Talk Live and I look forward to, uh, to you joining, uh, joining me in future programs. Ted, thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity. And again, I can't uh, thank the audience very much for listening in tonight. And uh, here's to a great 2017 season and beyond. All right? Fairways and greens. Perfect. All right. All right. Thanks, Bill. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care, Ted. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that was my very special guest, uh, PJ professional uh, Bill Abrams. And uh, he is also the owner and director of instruction uh, for Golf uh, Solutions Academy, and you can find him at the uh, Balmoral Woods in Creek, uh, Illinois, in the spring. I think he said after April, and right now he's still down at the Carolina Club in Margate, Florida. Uh, for those of you in uh, that part of uh, Florida that maybe want to uh, uh, go and work with him there, so you can reach out to him at BillAbramsGolf.com. Excuse me. And uh, as he said, he has a contact form there, so you can certainly reach out. And I strongly uh, urge you to do that. Uh, maybe you might have some questions about club fitting. Uh, maybe you're looking to upgrade what you currently have. Um, Bill, I'm sure, would be more than happy to to have that discussion with you and help you out any way you can. Uh, again, I want to uh, not only uh, apologize to my guests, but uh, also to the audience out there. I hope uh, that uh, it wasn't too uh, too uncomfortable. But um, we got a, a late start, as I said, had some uh, ran into some t- technical uh, issues uh, to start the year off and. Uh, Hopefully that's not going to be a commonplace. I'm going to make sure that it's not. But uh, uh, I also want to take this opportunity to thank all of the listeners that have have really uh, faithfully tuned into the show over the last several years. You guys have really done some some great things. I want to uh, also thank uh, many, many of the guests that have come on the show as well and and sort of uh, helped spread the word over the last several years. We're working on our fifth season now uh, for Golf Talk Live and uh, our third season for the other show that I mentioned uh, earlier, Women of Golf show that I uh, co-host with, of course, LPJ professional Cindy Miller. Uh, and just a quick note on that, uh, we'll be opening up our first uh, Women of Golf show next Tuesday, which is February 7th. Uh, we'll be starting uh, for the 2017 then. And of course, I'll be back next Thursday here on Golf Talk Live and go it alone. And uh, fingers crossed, everything will, will run smoothly next week. But uh, uh but thank you very much for, for joining me on, on the program and, and tuning in each and every week. Uh, a thing that uh, probably a lot of people don't realize that uh, we've really gained a, a, a great national, not only are there many, many listeners here in the United States that tune into the shows uh, each and every week, uh, but many uh, in virtually every country that you can think of around the world, um, from China to Korea to uh, England, Ireland, you know, Scotland, you name it. Um, even South Africa, uh, Australia, many, many other uh, countries and continents uh, that the show is is reaching out to. So uh, thank you to all of uh, some of my foreign uh, listeners, particularly for for, uh, tuning in uh, to the shows. And for those of you that um, are new to the show and and maybe aren't familiar with the the process, uh, Golf Talk Live and Women of Golf Show are, of course, live uh, every week uh, on the blogtalkradio.com network. And the simple way to find it is go to blogtalkradio.com and type in up in the search key. Um, Women of Golf will take you to our Tuesday morning show, which airs from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And Thursday nights, if you type in Golf Talk Live, 
from 6 to 8 p.m. Central uh, or 7 to 9 Eastern for those of you on the East Coast. Um, that will take you to Golf Talk Live's live show. Both, uh, both broadcasts are live on those uh, particular days, uh, each and every week, uh, unless otherwise stated. And uh, But for those of you that maybe can't tune in live, if you just go to blogtalkradio.com and in the search key type either one of those, Women of Golf uh, or Golf Talk Live, uh, you can scroll down to the on-demand section and listen to the previously uh, recorded segments um, which you can do tonight if you didn't happen to uh, catch the live broadcast. So uh, again, thank you everybody. Uh, I'm looking really looking forward to a great uh, 2017 season. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, once we got on air, uh, March 2nd, we'll be starting with uh, Coach's Corner will be coming back again, uh, which will take the first hour of the show. And then the second hour, of course, uh, as always, I will be interviewing some great guests. Um, what's going to be a little bit different this year on Coach's Corner is uh, two of the uh, shows during each month, I'm going to be having a featured guest uh, that will be coming on and joining me, and we'll have a specific topic that we're going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to give them the mic, if you will, for a few moments to, uh, to sort of start to initiate the conversation, and then the other uh, panelists will be joining in, and we'll have some, uh, some hopefully some good, lively discussion on, on a variety of, of interesting topics. Uh, got lots of great things planned throughout the year, so uh, please make sure that you come back and join us, uh, as I said, on blogtalkradio.com, uh, both the Women of Golf Show and uh, Golf Talk Live. Um, thank you, everybody. Have a great week, and I will see you next time right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody. <laughs>